Welcome to Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to episode number 43 of Hubstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Baldacci, and today I'm talking with Bill Faith of Inbound Marketing Agents. I've talked to a lot of really interesting people as a host of the show, but Bill's right up there near the top, and today you're all in for a real treat. Bill has started 23 businesses in his life. Yep, 23, including a limousine company he built up to $8.8 million a year before selling it, and a mini golf franchise with 78 locations nationwide. Oh, he was also a professional golfer. His story is unique for sure. And while this would be a great episode if all Bill did was tell stories, it's an amazing episode because he does more than that. Bill took that vast experience and used it to build a multi-million dollar agency nearly overnight. But he's not here today to brag. And instead, he shares how that fast growth nearly destroyed the company and what he had to do to fix it. I was going to say, if you're obsessed with growth but have a plan for the new problems that arise when you actually achieve that growth, this episode is for you. But honestly, everybody out there will get something out of this show. So I'm just going to stop talking so we can get to the good stuff. So without further ado, here's Bill. Bill, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Andy. I'm excited for this. Me too. And so it's funny. Usually when I ask a guest to share their story of how they ended up where they are today, it typically will follow a fairly predictable path. That absolutely cannot be said for your story. So listeners are in for a treat with this. So Bill, you're a former professional golfer who has started, I think it's 22 businesses. How in the world did you end up building a successful inbound marketing agency? Wow, that's a, a pretty big question to uh, start <laughs> off the podcast. Um, Just getting right into but it. But you know what? I'm 43 years old, and I'm obviously not playing professional golf anymore, so I guess that means I wasn't very good, right? So I had to find a different calling in life, um, which I think I really found when I was in high school when I launched my first business, first legitimate business, right? And so I quit playing professional golf. We'll fast forward about you know nine, ten years uh, from that period because I decided to get married and I didn't want to have that lifestyle traveling the world when I decided to get married. And so I went through a progression of I launched my first e-commerce business in 1997, sold that, got into the restaurant business, became a college golf coach. I've done a myriad of things. So what happened was in kind of the last 10 years of my life as I was building a business called Glow Golf, which is glow in the dark indoor miniature golf courses around the country. And I was on a site visit uh, coming to Nashville. Found a location. Within 28 days, my wife had sold our house, moved out of California, relocated to Nashville, started that business. So about three years after we started, we were expanding very, very rapidly. We went from nine locations to 78 locations nationwide in literally three and a half years. I was flying to uh, Detroit, Michigan to go to Auburn Hills to have a city council meeting to get a zoning change for a location we were opening up there. Long story short, I was a, a corporate traveler using car service. And what happened was is my car didn't show up. I missed the meeting. It cost me 18 grand. Sweet and simple. Got really bad customer service on the back end. Didn't take care of me. Charged me for both trips, the inbound and the outbound, even though I didn't use them. I was pissed. This was on a Thursday. By Monday of the next week, I procured a phone number, started a website, uh, Silver Oak limo.com and bought my first limousine over the weekend and I'd started a limousine company. 
What I found out very, very quickly was that I knew nothing about online marketing. And in that type of a business that had very, very small margins, I scaled that company from zero on May 26 of 2006 to June 1st of 2007 to doing $1.1 million in revenue. But I didn't know how to do online marketing. That was just through traditional sales. So I got burned by an SEO company that I had hired in San Francisco, got burned by another SEO company that, you know, the old adage, guarantee, you know, 10 keywords, first page of Google in 90 days. I didn't know any better. So the second time I went to a company out of Manhattan, same results, felt like I got screwed. So I had to find my own solution, literally locked myself in my home office for about two to three days over the weekend, my wife thought I was crazy. And on Sunday late afternoon, I'm watching some football and I found this website called HubSpot.com and became a HubSpot customer on Monday. Uh, at that time, they had an eight-week onboarding process that one of my contingencies on Monday morning when I talked to John Marcus, who was my sales rep, who now owns Bedrock Data or is a partner in Bedrock Data, I said, I wanted in eight days. He said, wow, I got to get approval on that. We've never done it. Talked to him about it for like 20 to 30 minutes. I said, I found your internal wiki. I know the process. I know the onboarding process. I know about blogging and landing pages, all that type of stuff. I just want the training and I want it fast tracked as quickly as possible. So he said, let me call you back in like 30 minutes. Well, he comes back in there. He had this guy named Brian uh, on the call with us, who now I know was Brian Halligan at that time, one of the founders. And, you know, Brian wanted to go through and vet me and, you know, just said basically, hey, if you fail, you know, we can't give you a refund, anything like that. Wanted to make sure that I, we were both on the same page. I said, Brian, that's cool. Look, I was buying a $300 basic package. It was no huge investment. And I said, Brian, you're cool with the eight days? He's all, yeah, we'll make it happen. I said, you understand that includes Saturdays and Sundays. I'm not talking eight business days because I didn't have the patience to wait, right? So they made it happen. And Michael Redboard, who's now the director of, I think, customer support or manager VP, whatever his title is, was my IMC, my onboarding manager. And he hated me because I made him work on Saturdays and Sundays. And lo and behold, about 100 to 120 days later, I was just crushing it and killing my biggest competitor here because I had already written and published like about 50 or 60 blog articles. I literally wasn't doing one or two a week. I dove in. Remember, this is early 2008, so volume of content was very critical at that point, right? So I learned how to do on-page SEO. I was blogging content. I created my first five lead magnets and uh, landing pages and my workflows all within that time period. And I went from ground zero to being probably almost an intermediate inbound marketer at that time. So kind of what happened, Andy, is over the next three and a half years, I took my company from 1.1 million to 8.8 million and an acquisition in the limousine industry. So I kind of became the Gary Vanderchuk, Seth Godin, Chris Brogan, Guy Kawasaki of the limousine industry on how to do online marketing sales and really growth hacking, right? Because nobody was doing that in that archaic industry. So when I decided to leave the industry after my acquisition, I sent out an email to what we call affiliates, the companies I would use globally in my affiliate network and my contacts and said, guys, I've left Grand Avenue. And I just happened to have started an online marketing company. So if you need help generating leads and SEO and social media and all that other BS, right? I said, just give me a call. I closed my first retainer within 48 hours out of New York, one of the largest companies in the industry at $24,000 a month. 
Because that's the thing is when you send out that email, it's not coming from – it's not like a cold email. It's, they've been wondering what the hell you did to grow that quickly, and they've been wanting this. I'm sure they were just chomping at the bit when they're like, oh, wow, like he's willing to teach us. Yeah, much. so I mean I, I, I was very fortunate. I, I believe very heavily in personal brand building, right? So for about the last two or three years when I was in the industry, I was speaking at conferences. That industry has three or four uh, conferences, two which are decent size, between 1,500 to 4,000 people um, at each conference. And, you know, I was teaching them how to do certain things, you know, whether it's data mining on LinkedIn, you know, to find prospects and get warm connections to do warm intros or, you know, how to manage social media a day and you know, five minutes when, you know, organic on Facebook was actually pretty easy, much easier than today. Right. Um, so I was teaching them those things and they knew how I was growing and I was writing articles in the magazines to build my personal brand. So really I had a very captive audience to your point. There was only a three day transition from me leaving my limousine company that I'd sold to, to starting this agency in my basement by myself, uh, with one iMac and that's it, right? Right. Did you consider yourself an agency at that point or was this just you were going to be a consultant? I was going to be a consultant. I was already went through the process of becoming a HubSpot partner agency, but I had no clients. So I my whole plan was just to consult. So the problem was, was when I actually got that first retainer, which was crazy at $24,000 a month, I had to rebuild their website. I needed a graphic designer. I don't know how to code. You know, I couldn't create the volumes of content for them and then scale with anybody else. And I didn't want a $250,000 a year job. So literally within about three weeks, I found an awesome writer um, out of Portland, Oregon, which was my first employee, hired her freelance through Xeris, uh, through a recommendation from my mentor, Sam Malakarjanan, uh, at HubSpot, who is now the director, uh, used to be of the e-commerce division, then inbound.org, and now he's like HubSpot Labs or something like that. And he's kind of down in your area, I believe. And um, so I met this girl named Jasmine Henry that he recommended me to, and I hired her, and she was cranking out five to seven blog articles a day for me because within two weeks I had four additional clients because as soon as I landed that largest well, probably the second largest limousine company in the industry, boom, everybody else wanted to work with me. Within that industry? Just within that industry. So I was just focused on the limousine industry. That was 100% of our revenue source. So two weeks, I've got close to $40,000 a month in retainers. And I still at two weeks had no employees, with the exception of Jasmine, who was a freelancer, which was writing for me. Now, I'll fast forward to HubSpot's inbound conference. This is 2012, which was in August that year. And just to quantify for those of you that are listening that went to inbound last year, the year before, there was only about 1,100 people there in 2012, not 10,000. Um, by that time, I had six people, uh, actually seven on my staff. I'd never met Jasmine before. As I'd hired her as an employee. She was working remotely in Portland. I flew her out to inbound, and she relocated the next week. Uh, to Nashville uh, to work here in office full time. So I'd moved out of my basement in about five months, had seven employees, and was doing close to $670,000 in revenue on a reoccurring contracted basis at that time. Because I spoke at Inbound and my talk was about how to dominate a vertical, which I think is very, very important for the smaller agencies and the consultants that are just starting or that really want to scale is 
don't get into e-com and manufacturing and transportation, hospitality, hotels, all these different things. Focus on one vertical and dominate it. Because look, I had growing pains, as you and I have talked about previously, and I'm sure we'll get into. By the time I wrapped around to April of 2013, we were doing over a million dollars in revenue and I had 17 employees. But I had no profit margin. Literally, my profit margin was sub 10% because I didn't know how to grow an agency. So I did what any smart entrepreneur would do. And I called Sam Malakarjanan, who was, I think, the smartest guy that I knew at HubSpot. And I knew about 40 or 50 of them, uh, employees pretty intimately. And I said, Sam, what do you think about coming and being my CMO? I'd like to rent you. And I will pay you handsomely if you can convince whoever you need to convince at HubSpot to let me rent you for three or four or five months to come down to Nashville. I'll pay for you to move. You can bring your wife, yada, yada, yada. But I need help creating the processes and the systems and scale within the agency. And he came down for about 100 days and helped me do that. And I don't think that I would be in the position today without him helping me to lay that groundwork. Now, what's really interesting is that I think most people would get this, but that was roughly ran up to about July of 2012. We're now in 2016. My how has changed in our industry, right? Everything that Sam and I put into place is so not even a part of our company today. But I'm so indebted to him in regards to the methodology and the strategy that he taught me because I had no experience in being an agency owner. And I think what's different about me and about inbound marketing agents versus other agencies, we are not a marketing agency first. We are not a HubSpot partner first. We are not a digital agency or an SEO agency or anything like that. We are a customer acquisition agency that fully has to get ingrained into your business. And that is not a sales pitch. Probably the biggest benefactor that we have, and this is not an egotistical statement, Andy, is my business experience being so diversified. Because I've been in so many different verticals, and I am an ROI-driven. I mean, I base every decision off of financials and P&Ls and balance sheets and FTE, full-time employee scalable models, that I'm able to really connect with the owner or the president or the CFO. Where we struggle is if we're dealing with a marketing manager or a CMO or an owner that doesn't understand their financials and doesn't know their unit economics and really can't put those numbers behind it, then they're probably not a good fit for us. So one of the, one of the problems to our scale, to scale over a million dollars in reoccurring revenue, that's contracted reoccurring revenue in less than a year, is we took on bad clients. Clients that were uneducated, clients that didn't have the assets in place for us to be able to do our job effectively. Most importantly, clients that really didn't know their business and thought, even though we set expectations during the sales process and the onboarding process, they thought we could wave this magic wand and all of a sudden they would go from doing a million dollars to $2 million in revenue. Was that something that having Sam come in, he said, he looked at your clients and said, these are the wrong fits. Was it something you intuitively got or what made you realize and look up and say, hey, we were dealing with too many of the wrong people? I think it was when I filed my tax return in 2013 for 2012. And, you know, I had very little, you know, net profit at the at the end of the day. I have no problem doing a storm the beach mentality to acquire customers. But what we were struggling with is the customers that we were acquiring, we were basically acquiring at freelance freelancer rates. 
and getting them to increase when they don't know their numbers or their business or their P&Ls or their balance sheets where they can quantify that financial decision to go from a $2,000 a month retainer to three or four was nearly impossible. And that's when I had to start top grading. And that's when we decided to diversify outside of the limousine industry to where today 70% of our revenue is not in the limousine industry. When I I talk to so many other guests and and what they always say, and especially to freelancers and smaller agencies, is that to get out of that $1,500 project, the $5,000 projects even, to get out of that, that bracket and actually charge real money and make real margins, you need to always tie it back into the business outcomes, the ROI. You need to bring it down into the numbers. But it sounds like what you're saying is that's true, but you also have to have find the clients that actually understand all of that and are, are on board with all of that to make that work. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that's 100%. And that's why in our agency, there's only one person that handles business development or sales. And that's me. Nobody else, nobody else does it. And if the client doesn't understand that, and look, we we they have to go through an application. I'm not just talking about like an inbound marketing assessment. There's an application process. Essentially, I'm interviewing them more than they're interviewing us. And it was really interesting because last week we had a, a very large uh, prospect out of Ecuador um, that I had my entire team on a video conference call with them and on Skype, actually. And about half of them have never been through that process with me. And they know my mentality. They know I'm quadruple type A and OCD and ODD and everything else, right? Uh, but they'd never seen me physically work through the sales process. And now they really get it because we don't want to make that mistake because, look, it's a huge time suck and we're forecasting. We're forecasting growth and scale, you know, based on those clients that we take on. And if I take on one of those clients, they're going to have a very, very high short-term risk uh, churn factor, whether it's from us firing them or it's from them firing us. So because... I want to look at 12 to 24 month growth plans as opposed to three to six month growth plans. And I think the problem that happens with small agencies and freelancers that I see, because I consult with a lot of them, is that they're just thinking about short term because of those $1,500 retainers or that $3,000 website project or, you know, whatever it is. And the number one thing I would tell them is you have to market and brand yourself out of that, uh, you know, price price zone. You have to be creating $10,000 a month content. You have to have a $10,000 a month sales process. You have to have a $10,000 a month brand. And what happens is we all get consumed with the work that we're doing for our clients and we don't allocate enough time to invest into our brand so we don't get out of that cyclical cycle of the small client customer acquisition issues. No, I I think you hit the nail absolutely on the head with that is that you need to be able to justify the value. You need to be able to tie it back to the business goals. You need to tie it back to the long-term things that allow you to create something where someone is willing to pay you $10,000 a month. But to back that up, you also need to have the brand. You need to have the kind of recognition so that people know you're not full of crap. Like So they know you actually can back this up and that you're not just – Blowing smoke. You know, and I think that's a really great point, Andy, because, you know, here's one of the issues that I have when I wanted to scale outside of the limousine industry. It was great to go in and dominate a vertical. But the problem was, is I didn't have applicable case studies to be able to apply to publishing or e-commerce or professional services or law firms or whatever that would be. So 
that's kind of the chicken and the egg. And the one thing that I will tell everybody that's struggling to get those bigger retainers out there, the number one thing that's going to sell is going to be your brand. Number two is going to be you have to have case studies. So if that means that you have to go in and work with a nonprofit or a dentist or a law firm or whatever it is for 60 or 90 days and kick ass for them so you can get quality data to build a case study, invest that time because that is what's going to sell bigger clients for you. The clients that aren't requesting case studies, that's yellow flag number one for me that they are not educated uh, to really make a strong buying decision in regards to being able to expend a large budget. So I would definitely build your portfolio of case studies. That's my number one recommendation to be able to acquire larger customers. That's a great tip because I didn't even think about it in the way you just said is that if the buyer, if the person you're communicating with doesn't even ask for that, then they probably don't even have the budget because if they did, that'll be one of the first things they asked for. I hadn't even thought of it like that. Yeah. And I mean, if, if they don't, then they're you right off the bat from a sales standpoint and a qualifying standpoint, you can definitely assume, at least I see this in my data, is that that person's really going to be a price conscious decision buyer. And that is definitively who I do not want. That's who I acquired my first year. And that's why I had absolutely no margin left over at the end of the year. So I think that when you when you look at these traits and you go through these sales processes and you look at the the persona or the profiles of really what happens through that sales process and the questions that your buyers are asking of you and how they're reacting to the content that you're delivering to them, whether it's in your proposal, whether it's in those case studies, however you are customizing that process. And that's one reason why I do everything over go to meeting and record everyone. If I'm delivering a proposal, even though I do it electronically, I schedule a meeting and I email it to them while we're on the phone. So that way I can go through it and I can record it and I can review it when I get done. So I can get better as point number one. But point number two, I want to make sure that there is absolutely no misrepresentation on the expectations that are being set. Even if you just did it for one of those reasons, like even if you only recorded it so that you could review what you've done and improve and study, that alone is worth a ton. Or even if you just did it so that you had kind of a hard record of this is what actually was discussed, this is what was agreed upon, that's incredibly valuable. But that's both of those together. I mean, that's something most people don't do, but it's how you improve at anything. And that's the kind of angle I want to focus on is the improvement aspect because You'll relate to this, obviously, with the golf metaphor, but it's like golfers, the average golfer just goes out, plays around, and expects that just by playing another round and another round, they're going to straighten out their slice, they're going to hit it 300 yards, and sooner than later, they'll be on the pro tour. But that's not what practice is like. That's not how you improve. You need to actually study what you're doing and make fine-tuned improvements to the exact process. And usually it doesn't come from just making another pitch and making another pitch and writing another proposal. You have to actually analyze it. You're, you're, you're hundred percent correct. I, and one of the other things I think in the proposal pri- process, which, you know, I can obviously as part of the customer acquisition process, you know, for the better part of the first 16, 17 months, I was just using word docs and PDFs. Right. And we're people think of a digital marketing agency as a tech company, right? Not really a great representation on sending proposals in a word doc and a PDF, and then they have to print it out or, you know, use Adobe to sign it and send it back. So I actually switched. I went through, you know, everything from Adobe to Quote Roller to Salesforce to, and I settled on Proposify, which is what I use because it's simple, it's easy. And then the light went off for me. Bill, why the heck are you not dropping video 
into the proposals because it's a one-click embed code inside of Proposify, right? So once I started using video in my proposals, we saw about a 38% increase in buying rates. Wow. And that's huge. It's, I mean, yesterday, Andy, um, you know, I had a proposal that I had to get out at 6 o'clock last night. And the client I knew was qualified to about 92 to 95, 90 to 95% to close. So I bypassed my typical process of, you know, sending it, um, scheduling the go to meeting and then sending it to him then. And I just grabbed James, my videographer, jumped back in my video room and shot a really quick four minute video explaining the proposal, uploaded it to Vimeo, dropped it into Proposify and 15 minutes I'm out. And it was he closed last night at about nine thirty. Wow! And so for these videos, it's it's you're not just reading and reiterating what the proposal says. I'm assuming what what do you put in the videos? Like how do you use it to kind of maximize the format and maximize the leverage you get from that? So I'm going to borrow you know kind of an anecdote from Ryan Dice from Digital Marketer, and you know I think Jeff Walker from PLF uh, Product Launch Formula teaches this as well. It's about the transformation. Right. It's taking the customer from a the beginning and getting them to be the after and everything that you put in between and the long, the wider you can make that gap from a to b, the more stuff you can show them, the bigger their transformation is going to be, the easier it's going to be for them to buy from you. So that transformation is what I focus on. I don't focus on, hey, we're going to do five Facebook campaigns a month or write eight blog articles or, you know, do three lead magnets or have four funnels, whatever that is. I focus on the transformation of what is their problem now and then how do I give them the solution? And most importantly, what does their life look like when we get to the end, which is B, once they've hired us. It might- so you're almost taking a page out of their book. You almost make it kind of a video sales letter attached to the proposal like you you really sell the dream you sell that it is 100 percent of vsl yeah okay and what i'm curious about those one thing you, you touched on that you're not selling the deliverables you're not talking about what they're going to get how many blog posts how much whatever but at the end of the day do you tie pricing back to that or do you do strictly value pricing strictly value pricing i'm selling my intellectual property of you know doing inbound marketing and my you know for Gosh, it's almost 10 years. I feel so old, you know, about (laughs) nine years and my 23 years of business experience and the skills that I have inside my office. And most importantly, the results that I've driven for other customers, because if somebody wants to hold me to those eight blog articles a month and, you know, five landing pages and, you know, all that type of stuff and 12 Facebook posts a week, yada, 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 you know, I can't create value for them doing that. We give an agile business proposal or agreement to our clients. We tell them what we anticipate based on our research is going to go into it, but we test. So I'm going to take another um, anecdote from another one of my really good mentors and people that I look up to. I think Ryan Dice and Russell Brunson are two of the best marketers that we have on this planet today. And Russell Brunson, it's a very simple anecdote. I mean, he's very complex on what he does and what he teaches. But if you're going to put a dollar in, you better get a dollar out. And if you're going to put a dollar in, you get $2 out, you better run it to the bank every day, right? But the only way you can determine that is to test and test quickly. So we tell them based on our research what we're going to test as we go through. And here's the other thing, Andy. The first 30 to 45 days, zero deliverables, zero. 
That is our research and discovery phase. Sure, we've done ancillary research on the front end to be able to give them a proposal, but we're doing, depending on the type of client, it might be faster or longer, but we're doing focus groups. We're interviewing their sales team. We're getting SLAs into place. We have to do a full deep dive. We will not take on a client without going through that research and setup phase. Would you be your worst client by saying, coming up to you and saying, hey, instead of spending 30 to 45 days on this, do it in three? That's exactly why we have that in process, in the process, <laughs> because my team would not want me as a client, no question. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I move very, very fast, but I do my due diligence. I just happen to do it kind of Gary V style between 9 p.m. and 2 a.m. in the morning every single night, right, while my family's sleeping. Um, but I, I get my done. I'm not making knee jerk reactions uh, without having data and research behind it by any means. But I think that is one of the critical components to a successful agency is speed. You cannot compromise quality, but you have to have speed because in my world, I don't know how everybody else is charging. I mean, on a monthly reoccurring revenue, you know, I'm 100% profitable on day number one of the month. My profit all has to do with my hours, my labor, my contractors, my ad budgets going through the end of the month. I have to be fast and I have to make sure that I have scale. I mean, we try to operate at between 85 to 90% utilization uh, for our team members. And once we hit that 90%, I know I need to add somebody. And that's why we typically now only take on two to three new clients a month max. We will never take on more than two or three. And sometimes it's one and sometimes it's none, depending on our utilization. The great thing for us, I guess we're a benefactor of you know being around for so long, we have absolutely no shortage of leads and or SQLs at all. I mean, we can kind of pick and choose who we want to try to work with at this point. Like if you were to hire, if you're looking for people to complement your own team, is there a shortage of that? Absolutely. And I think one of the problems is, one, we don't work remotely. Everybody's in-house. Can We've tried remote. We, we're unsuccessful with it. And so everybody's in-house, so I can only really pull from Nashville. You know, I've got a, a new girl on my team that relocated here in June, and we recruited her and hired her away from HubSpot. Um, and, and she's phenomenal. But we have to convince those people that Nashville is better than Boston and that they have a great <laughs> opportunity. Thank God I'm in a great city. And even though it, I mean, it was three times harder two or three years ago. But with the boom in Nashville, it's getting easier. But look, I'm not really invested as much into the inbound methodology anymore. I'm much more a combination of that with into more direct response and much more in-depth funnels. So I would say that IMA, Inbound Marketing Agents, is probably 20% HubSpot and like 40% Digital Marketer and 40% ClickFunnels Russell Brunson today. That was going to be one of my questions is, do you still consider yourself an inbound marketing agency? Um, I don't. So, you know, we're actually considering a brand and a name change, to be honest with you. Um, because I think we're much more funnelized in direct response. And that kind of goes back into that testing. I think inbound marketing for most people is just way too slow. It takes too big of an investment. You know, it's too long, especially with organic. And, you know, I think you have to be focused on direct response now. And I think even if you are, you know, traditional old school inbound marketing, you know, con content creation and distribution, and it's all organic, 
you're doing yourself and your clients a disservice if you don't at least have a small percentage of the budget going into direct response and probably most importantly for most companies using Facebook ads because they are so good and so profitable. How did you first transition from pure inbound to the direct response role? Is that something you were experimenting with before in your other businesses or where did that come about? So, I mean, I honestly, I think it started with, you know, finding digital marketer. And by that, I mean, just seeing a Facebook ad that was targeted to me, most likely based on my profile, uh, my, my demo, right? And I just saw the ads and then I clicked on something. I was, I'm sure Ryan was trying to sell me a, uh, an, an EP from digital marketer lab for like seven or nine bucks. Right. And I, I, I don't remember exactly, but I assume I bought it. And then, cause I do know that I started as a lab member with digital marketer, went through all of their EPs or execution plans. Then we upgraded to HQ and went through all of their certifications. And in that time, I wouldn't say there was this one aha moment, but it was kind of, going through the 21 day traffic plan and, you know, looking at those funnels. And then all of a sudden I had this epiphany that, you know what, I'm going to change our business model a little bit and I'm going to go into the information products. This started about 18 months ago. And I would say that's probably really when it happened when I decided that Look, I've kind of scaled out of the limousine industry, but I still love them and they're getting clobbered by the TNCs, Uber and Lyft right now. They need my help, but I can't I can't cost justify what they can afford to pay me. So I needed to find a way to be able to supply services to them on a one to many level. And I shouldn't say services, at least education to them to teach them to enable them to do it on their own. So I created Limo University. Um, which is my courses and my membership platform. And for that, I needed direct response because there's only two ways really to hit the limousine industry and acquire them. Email marketing, if you have your list, and then Facebook ads. They're not on Twitter. They're not on LinkedIn. They're not on Instagram. I really have no other channels. So I guess the third would be speaking at the shows and conferences. And I did that. So when our average retainer went up to about $5,500 a year a couple of years ago, you know, that pretty much put 90% of the industry out of reach uh, for us. And we kind of went from 2000 to 3000 to 4000 to like 5500 And we're much higher than that today. But I still wanted to serve them. So I had to learn direct response. So it was kind of this culmination of finding digital marketer, having this idea that manifested 16 months ago when we're coming up on the 12-month, 12, 12 one-year anniversary next month to launching this platform. Now, what I learned is, is this platform became my largest customer, uh, Limo University, for because we're using IMA assets. It's about 70% me, but I need my team to create funnels and do all that stuff. I don't do as much of that execution anymore. Um, and it's our most profitable, where our average retainer client today, we carry about a 30 to 32% profit margin, that's net, um, you know, the informational side, the limo university is much higher than that. So we have, we have a business plan, we have a growth plan and that really helps with our margins. So with that being said, we're building out our second informational, uh, product that's going into a different vertical right now because the margins are so high and it's much less stressful, uh, than having to produce every single month for a client. And that's kind of where I see it. It kind of replaces traditional consulting, Right. 
because you can kind of roll a mastermind-esque model to it uh, in your membership side. You can roll a coaching model into it and you can do the one-to-many. One-to-many might be one-to-five or one-to-ten, but it could also be one-to-a-hundred or one-to-a-thousand. And we don't have that ability in a traditional agency-client relationship. Are you willing to say what the new vertical that the new info product is going to be in? Um, yeah, it's billfaith.com. And it's very similar to what Shailene Johnston has done, if you're familiar with Shailene. Um, instead of like Jeff Walker having one product, product launch formula, billfaith.com will be the umbrella brand. And we will be creating, and we use new Kajabi as our platform, we will be creating specific industry vertically targeted um, educational components. So like we've got Limo University obviously targeting the limousine and ground transportation and motor coach uh, industries. But I've also done a lot of work for the arts and crafts industry, which started with uh, a website called craftsy.com. And they had a conference of like 1,800 of their people that sell like online craft courses, how to mix paint, you know, how to sew, how to crochet, you know, for 18 to 20 bucks a pop. So I did an online uh, webcast or webinar for them. And then I built out some, you know, reoccurring educational resources for them to be able to sell, you know, to everybody. It's, in my opinion, if you can find an underserved market like that, then it's very easy and you can grow a business quickly and it's just so much more profitable on that one to many scale. In your minds, what will the growth plan for say the arts and arts and crafts vertical, like what will that look like to launch the limo U of arts and crafts? Like how will you get that off the ground? So, I mean, that, that's a great question. I would have never done that. And I did it six, seven months ago was craftsy came to me. So it kind of fell in my lap through my inbound marketing, through my agency, right? And they wanted me to put together a program for them for their annual conference that was coming up in Denver. So immediately, I'm like, okay, well, I can charge you five grand for this. Or how about if I give it to you for free, but I need access to your 1,800 members. So I can create something that's going to have reoccurring revenue for me. And I don't want to, I'll give this to you for free. Give me access to them. You promote this webinar. You give me the list. I'll promote it. And then we'll do a joint venture that way. So that way I can reach everybody. So I would have never targeted that industry if they hadn't come to me first. It's not big. It's not big enough. Going forward, will it be more sort of joint venture webinars? Are you going to do driving that with Facebook ads? Like I'm curious about kind of the nitty gritty details if you're willing yeah, to Yeah, so like that. BillFaith.com as an example, I think would probably be a better use case for that. So you can go to BillFaith.com right now and there's not even a website. It's just a landing page and you can subscribe for more, right? Now we have a Facebook page up and we're posting content, but we're really in, we're not even in pre-launch yet. We're not going to launch till November and we'll probably do 30 days of you know, pre-launch and we'll load a lead magnet. And yes, we will use Facebook ads that are going to be targeted and we'll tell my story and we'll be very video heavy. But we also will use joint ventures to be able to launch as well. So that's one of the things that if there's anybody that's listening to this, and my gosh, if you if you know who Stu McLaren is, who just launched Tribe the Course, the expert on membership uh, websites about two two to three weeks ago, everybody from Jeff Walker to Ryan Dice to Michael Hyatt, you know, to Ryan Levesque, Pat Flynn were all part of his joint venture launch, right? And you're just getting bombarded with their uh, pre-launch content by everybody as an affiliate that's selling 
his stuff. We will do the exact same thing. That's one of the reasons that I go to those conferences, not only to learn, but to network with other people that are there like me, other coaches, other people in the entrepreneur, uh, in the sales side of the information industry. So that way I can build my network for um, joint ventures as an affiliate on both sides. One, when I need them to joint venture with me to promote my products, but also for me to be an affiliate for them. Because I think affiliate revenue is something that a lot of agencies, you know, and specifically small one, two, three person stay at home agencies or even freelancers don't take advantage of. Look, if you if you look at your stack of technology, whether it's MailChimp or Emma or ActiveCampaign or HubSpot or Marketo or Infusionsoft, lead pages, click funnels, whatever it is, you should be getting affiliate commission on every single person that you sign up. I mean, I, I'm, we do probably fifty to sixty thousand dollars a year just in affiliate commission just from HubSpot. Um, you know, we're doing right now probably seven to ten just from lead pages. Right, that stuff adds up really, really quickly. So if you look at your tech stack, see if go to their website, see if they have an affiliate program. Ninety nine percent of them do. Sign up for it and use those links. And use them in detailed blog articles and content that you're distributing so they're converted. When somebody sees a great article on comparing ESPs and you've got MailChimp, ActiveCampaign, Direct Response, and Emma, you've got affiliate links for every one of them. An extra 50 year grand doesn't sound too bad, does it? I'm going to stop Bill right there, though, for a quick word from our sponsor, but hang tight because we're going to be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or whatever else your team decided to use that week and start getting the insights you need that can only come from having accurate data all in one place. Our best clients are agency owners, and while they love the accountability that comes with it, it's sort of like Upwork but without the crazy fees, where they really find the value is by being able to connect Hubstaff with their project management tool to see how much time it really takes to deliver each part of a project. Think of it as Google Analytics for your team. I've been absolutely blown away by how many times an agency owner has come up to me and said, Andy, we started using Hubstaff a month ago, and after looking over the data, we realized we've actually been losing money on one of our most popular services. If you don't know what your real profit was in your last project, then you'd need to try Hubstaff out. To say thanks for tuning into the show, Hubstaff is offering all of our listeners a 30% discount on all of our plans. All you need to do is head over to try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and use the coupon code advantage that's try.hubstaff.com forward slash podcast and coupon code advantage all right let's get back to bill that's it's actually funny you mentioned the esp example because for hubstaff we we recently switched from mailchimp to drip and i wrote a big article about Dealing with all the other options, like looking in detail at what every, all, everything was, was a huge pain in the ass. This was my honest experience with looking at active campaign, looking at all the options and wrote it up. But no, no affiliate links in that at all. And I know that drove a significant number of customers eventually to drip and probably to some of the others too. So not, not doing that was definitely an oversight. But it, for us as a, as a SaaS company, it just seems, and I'm sure agencies feel the same way. It's like they're like, well, that's not the business we're in. Like we don't, we're not affiliates. We we don't want to, we don't want to think that way. We don't want to do that. But I, I think you're right in that. That's a bit short sighted. You are in the business of making money. Exactly. That's the only business that you're in. 
we can all talk about the bullshit of serving people and helping their business and yada, yada, yada. And that's, Andy, 100% why I started this agency for the limousine industry. But just like with every cause business that's out there, every cause startup that puts the cause ahead of their financials, if you're not making money, you cannot support your cause. So the financial aspect is the most important. So you have to take advantage of every single opportunity that is out there for you. An affiliate commission is reoccurring revenue that you do nothing for. We're all writing content about our stack, about our tools, how to use them, what's best for this, what's best for that. Why not take one day and sign up for a fi- to be an affiliate with every single company that you're using in your stack and take advantage of it? Look at lead pages. I mean, if somebody buys a a professional version, it's like 500 bucks. It's like, I don't know, $45 or $50 a month. They pay us 20%. You know, I mean, it doesn't sound like it's that much, but when I get 20 bucks a month per account, multiply that times 10, right? That's $2,500 a year. Now for a freelancer, you do that three or four times, you're moving the needle. You know, I mean, we're doing, we'll probably do 150 to $200,000 in commission this year. Honestly, from that angle, I, I thought about it almost as like, oh, I wish I could have put like an affiliate link on, on this article. From the other angle, it's just something that I'm sure in the everyday, in the everyday content marketing that everyone is in this industry like, should be doing a lot of that. There are so many opportunities for affiliate marketing in still being honest, not being sleazy, being honest about your reviews, about what you're putting in your tech stack and why. There are a ton of opportunities to really take advantage of this. If you're not, I like the way you phrase it, is that you really are at that point, you're just turning away free money. 100%, I agree with you. And and I don't think it's sleazy. I mean, I think you have to disclose it. I would take the Chris Brogan approach to that. Anytime that you put an affiliate link in, disclose it and let them know because that is going to build more trust you know, from your audience that you're actually being upfront and honest with them. And you know what? If you are an influencer with them, that's going to make them more apt to buy as well. Taking a step back is, is with all this experimentation, getting into the direct response kind of mindset and techniques and all of that. Now that you've learned from them on your own projects, are you doing those services for your clients? Like, is that a pretty big service you offer now? I would say for probably the last five to six months, it's really the only thing that we offer. I mean, there's inbound that's you know, uh, rolled into that. No question. We still create content. We still blog. We still do a lot of that organic stuff, but most everything we're doing is tied around remarketing, you know, a, a single traffic source to test. And we kind of think of it agilely, right? So we're going to identify what we believe is the most valuable single traffic source. It may be organic blogging. It may be Pinterest ads. It may be Facebook ads. It may be organic Instagram or Snapchat, whatever that is, but we're going to go in and we're going to test it and get the results. And if they're good, we're going to throw as much fuel on it as we can and we're going to ride that horse. And if we have the bandwidth within the retainer, then we might start with two, right? But if we don't, we're just going to start with one. If we have a large retainer, $20,000, $30,000 a month, we might be doing three, four, or five. So it all depends on kind of the financial mix with the client mix, with the industry, with the buyer personas, you got to make those decisions. But I will tell you, there is not one proposal that goes out our door that is strictly organic inbound marketing. And there's nothing that's, you know, traditional old school SEO at, you know, a thousand, two thousand, three thousand dollars a month. 
every single proposal is centered around direct response. There's going to be content to support that, but most of that content is coming into email marketing and the funnelization because, look, every campaign that we set up typically has three to five funnels that goes around with it because we have to create the return path. We got to have a different retargeting funnel, you know, all of these things, you know, to go into it where when I first started with HubSpot, blog, social media, landing page, and one email sequence before progressive profiling and the COS and, you know, smart content and all that different type of stuff. So I look at direct response as kind of being the fulcrum today. And I think it's what's at least for us is providing uh, the best results. So we're going to ride that wave until something better comes along. And we are very heavily leveraged into video um, as well. We Most of our content that we're creating, either whether it's for for our customers or for our info products, um, is surrounded around video tied into direct response and then even video in the funnels as well. How so? Like when you say video in the funnels, what do you mean? On the pages that we're directing them to out of the funnels. I mean, obviously we can't confidently deliver video and email yet. I mean, you can kind of, but you can have a um, little image of a still frame and like a YouTube play button on top of it. Yeah. I mean, we do that. We try to incorporate some gifts as well, depending on, on what it is and that type of stuff. But you know, it's just obviously the tech just isn't there yet. Uh, but definitely, I mean, you know, as I said, we're including video in our proposals. I mean, mo- I would say at least 60, 70% of our ads that we're putting on to, you know, whether it's Facebook or, or wherever is going to be video driven. I'm speculating on this. I don't know the exact numbers, but probably 50% plus of every one of our landing pages or sales pages has video on it. Um, probably 20 to 40% of every page that's coming in tied into a funnel has a video on it. And that's all dependent on the clients, right? I can tell you with certainty that 100% of everything we do in the info product world has video on it. 100%. Because why, why the difference in split? Like, why is that 100% with some of the other projects? It's not that high. So some of the other ones, we don't get access to video because okay. they're, they're out of town. I mean, we only have about four clients in Nashville where we're based out of. Um, it slows down the process. And the info products are all based around my personal brand. So it's just for so, more practical reasons. Yeah, 100%. Interesting. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to think of this if I'm a, a standard inbound agency owner. I'm doing okay. Our margins, maybe they're reasonable. They're not amazing, not great. And But I'm sort of starting to see what you're talking about and that inbound only isn't going to be the future. You need to adapt. But everything you're talking about, having all these different funnels for all the different routes into the product and just all this, it's, it's not simple. So how would you recommend to someone who doesn't have the experience, who doesn't have all these other ways to test things, how would you recommend for them to get their feet wet um, number one thing I would say is buy the book.com secrets from Russell Brunson, because I think it's very anecdotal. It's very educational and it's very in depth. And most importantly, if you do not understand the sales ladder in regards to why you need two to three, possibly even four upsells from a business side tied into the marketing side, then you're going to miss the boat in your marketing, whether it's for yourself or, you know, doing it for another company. So that would be my number one recommendation. Number two would be Digital Marketer Lab. It's like 30 bucks a month. Great investment. If you're a Netflix binger ADD guy like me, you can consume every single thing in there in less than a month um, and be well on your way. But I think that part of that is that you've got to create your own formula. 
You know, so as we talked about Russell Brunson, Ryan Dice, digital marketer, um, you know, Jeff Walker, product launch formula, inbound, they're all tremendous influencers on the formula that we've put to get together that we use. So one of the problems we had when we first started is we were doing everything. And by what I mean by first started, not started the agency, but when we started manifesting into more direct marketing mix into, you know, our programs, we were still creating all of those blog articles. We were still sending out all those emails. We were still doing a million social media posts every single day. We were still doing newsletters. We were still doing, you know, press releases, all that traditional stuff. Narrow your focus based on what works. Narrow your focus and your deliverables based on what's working. What I see a lot of businesses want is when something's not working, they want you to focus on that and turn that weakness into a strength. And that's where I would sit there and say, absolutely not. Let's focus on the strength and let's make it stronger. And I see a lot of the smaller agencies, you know, doing that same thing. Well, I've got to do these nine things every month for this client. I suck at three or four of them. I've got to make those better. And what I will tell you is just push those off the table and focus on the five that you're really freaking good at because that's going to drive results. You may piss your client off for a week or two, right? But at the end of the month when you do your reporting and they see that the KPIs are awesome, the metrics are going up, then you have the leverage to be able to explain that to them and they'll understand. I mean, honestly, that, that's just kind of the manifestation of, of power laws and of the 80-20 rule where it's like, I think it was Perry Marshall wrote a great book on just how that can apply to everything. But Alan Weiss said it in a different way where he was just saying so many people, exactly what he was talking about is so many people want to spend so much time getting better at what they're bad at when if you have infinite resources, go for it, but you don't. So instead, just double down on what works, get better at what you're already really good at, because that's one, it's going to be a lot easier. But two, you know that there's money there, you know that there's potential there because it's already working. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll kind of, for those of you that, you know, are golfers out there, I'll, I'll give you a golf analogy. You know, I played professional golf and I was horrible at ball striking, meaning from tee to green. I, I di- even though I'm six foot six, I didn't hit it very long. I didn't hit it very straight and I didn't hit a lot of greens. But you know what I was really good at? I was really good at putting. I was probably about 21 years old, um, my second year playing professional golf. And I was always just beating balls on the range and I would just practice and practice. I'd fly to Orlando no matter where I was on an off week or if I missed a cut on a weekend to go see David Ledbetter, my coach. And I was sitting there with a friend who now plays on the PGA Tour and he's all, Bill, you're never going to be a great ball striker. I said, hey, Sean, thanks for the vote of confidence, man. (laughs) You know, that makes me feel real freaking good. And he's all, what I mean by that is, is you are one of the top five, if not the best putters out here get better at putting and you know kind of the light bulb went off and that's what I did and I mean two years in a row I finished second in the world putting championships right and that's kind of what gave me a little bit of longevity you know in my career and I got better my scoring average came down so I took that strength when I was trying to focus on those weaknesses you know but it took somebody else to identify that to me and then I migrated over and turned my strength into an even stronger strength. And it just so happens if you play golf, everybody focuses on hitting it farther and going to the range. Well, 80% of your shots are consumed within 25 yards of the green. So I became really, really good at my short game. And that's what kind of saved 
you know, my career while I was out there. Wow. I, I think that's a great story. But, but when you even take that back and apply it to the agency world, to the business world, you're not in a lot of markets, you're not really competing at a professional tour level. If you were to make it to be a Tiger Woods, to be truly the top of the top professionals, that advice might not be enough to get you there. You, you can't really have that many weak points. And even if it's not that weak, but, but you can't really get there by just focusing on the one thing. But most of us aren't competing there. We don't need to, to make our business earn a very good living for ourselves, to make our clients get great results for them. We don't need to do a thousand different things at a world-class level for them. If you could just do a couple of things really, really well for them, or for yourself, that's going to be enough to really get you ahead. Absolutely. We're not competing with Saatchi and Saatchi trying to get, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers or Apple as customers, right? So, you know, I'll give you a very, very good example that probably a lot of your listeners may not even be aware of. Look at Billy Jean Marketing. Mm-hmm. Anybody's, are you familiar with Billy I've, Jean? I've only because only I've seen the Facebook ads. Yeah. I mean, look at Billy Jean Marketing. Go, go to Billy Jean Marketing's Facebook page and get into one of their funnels And look at what he does. He is probably one of the best Facebook marketing agencies out there based out of San Diego. He's a little bit obnoxious on, you know, his, uh, the way that he delivers and that stuff, but he's using click funnels. He's using Facebook ads and the guy manages literally like a million dollars a month in Facebook ads and he dominates it. He is really good. He doesn't do SEO. He doesn't do website design. He's not doing inbound marketing. He does one thing really good and I have, I don't know him. I don't know, but from what I hear and what I see, he's very, very successful. Literally probably like a three to $5 million agency with only about eight to 10 employees probably has a good 30, 35% margin in what he's doing. Right. But he only does one thing, one only. And it's not even that he only does one thing for his clients, but for him to grow his business, he's not trying to do a bunch of different tactics to generate leads. It seems like for the most part, it's on Facebook ads. That's it. That's all he does. And I I have spoken to him once about two months ago. Um, and he showed me in real time on a screen share what he was doing on Facebook ads, his daily spend, what the leads were, what the conversion. We went through the whole thing for about an hour and a half. It was flabbergasting to me. And that was really what threw fuel on the fire for me to even want to go more just into that single niche. Look, when I was even as recent as a year ago, I'm building websites. I built, still built 97 websites in the last two years. Um, I, have, I still have SEO-only clients. I have inbound clients. I have consulting clients. I have um, Facebook ad clients. I have social media organic clients, right? But we're paring it down. And we're paring it down to where we have this narrow focus really on what we call an IMA client that starts around direct response and then rolls into more content marketing. Interesting. Bill, I I could talk to you for hours on hours on hours on end, but we do have to uh, wrap things up. And so I have just three quick questions. You can answer them kind of however you want to. It doesn't need to be about the agency. It can just be anything in general. So I'll go this quick. So the first one is what do you think you spend too much time on? Facebook. Just browsing? Is it that or what? Um, I mean, I use Facebook Messenger for a lot of communication, especially with international clients. But my wife's also launched a a fitness business on Facebook and my personal stuff. I've got like four Facebook pages. 
So I'll bet I spend at least 25% of my time on Facebook. And it's, I don't want to say it's a waste of time, but I do spend too much time there. Interesting. And then if you had some of that time back, what do you think, what did you not spend enough time on? What do you wish you could spend more time on? Reading. Hearing how much you do read and how much you do consume, I'd be blown away what you would accomplish if you could read even more. But I, I definitely see the value in that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I try to read at least 100 pages every night. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, dot-com secrets or the four-hour work week or, you know, that was, I guess that would equal probably about 10,000 Seth Godin blogs because he only writes <laughs> about 150 words. But, you know, I, I'm not an avid book reader. I'm more of a, a short micro content consumption uh, reader. But anyways, I would say that it is reading, definitely. That's awesome. So the last thing is, what are you hoping to accomplish in the next month? In the next month, we're relaunching Limo University right now. And then also to uh, get BillFaith.com ready to launch. And the rationale behind that is strictly because it's much more scalable. It's much more profitable, which relieves stress and overwhelm within the agency. So uh, right now... I'm almost scared to to go back through this episode for the show notes because there was just so much that you packed in there. But I'm also a bit excited by that. Um, I kind of geek out on, on reading through all these things, getting the notes together. But, Bill, you shared so many great tips today. I really just want to say thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, Andy. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me. And uh, let's get uh, round two on the books. Absolutely. <laughs> I told you that'd be a fun interview, and as much as I wanted to ask Bill what it's like golfing with Tiger Woods over 50 times, I kept it primarily to actionable advice for agency owners. For a golf fanatic like me, that wasn't easy. Honestly though, Bill raises a great point. So many agency owners are single-mindedly focused on growth, which is fine, but once they achieve that growth, they have an entirely new set of problems they need to deal with. For his agency, they hired too fast and took on the wrong clients. If he hadn't fixed that problem early on, they would have barely scraped by on their 10% margins. That growth mindset is crucial for success as an agency owner, but to succeed in the long term, you need to always think about the new problems that lie ahead. Not only that, but to build a lasting agency, you can't get complacent with your methods. Don't treat those methods as dogma. Agencies that aren't willing to adapt are going to get left behind for those that are. That being said, while you always want to be improving your methods, you need to be careful you don't lose focus and take on too much. It's a fine line to walk for sure, but if you can balance it, then your agency is primed for lasting success. That's all I have for you this week, but before I go, I have one favor to ask you. If you enjoyed this episode, could you take a minute and head over to iTunes and leave a review for the show? Reviews are one of the best ways to spread the word about this podcast, so it would really mean a lot to me. I'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. See ya.